New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. It was once the stuff of unattainable dreams, kept out of reach by lynch mobs, police dogs, and fire hoses. But in 2008, Barack Obama fulfilled the promise of the words, all men are created equal. We'll take a look back at the man who literally changed the face of the Oval Office just in time for President's Day and Black History Month. I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, and a special tip of the cap to everybody watching today's time travel adventure via our YouTube and Rumble channels. You can find me at historyauthor.com, or you can see me across social media platforms. You can also read my columns in the Washington Times to get my analysis of current events through the lens of history. Speaking of current events, this may be my most current historical book ever, and boy am I happy to bring it to you. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the recent past, where we'll examine the legacy of our two-term 44th Commander-in-Chief with an eye on how his legacy opened doors for a successor to turn the whole world of politics upside down. Our guide in this journey is Professor Claude A. Clegg III. He brings us the Black President, hope and fury in the age of Obama. He is the Lyle V. Jones Distinguished Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he has a joint appointment in the Department of African, African American, and Diaspora Studies and the Department of History. You can find him at ClaudeClegg.com and at ClaudeClegg on Twitter. That's Clegg spelled C-L-E-double-G. Okay, now that we've arrived back at election night of 2008, let's join Professor Clegg as he introduces us to the Black President. And here we are with Professor Claude A. Clegg III. He's joining us to chat about the Black President, Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with the History Author Show, sir. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciated that you reached out to me via Twitter and we got to talking about the view of history that we have of people that are contemporary and that aren't in the rearview mirror, certainly here with the Obama presidency, the, the full story can't be written of the man's life. So I wondered, it's great for me to be able to read such a book, but for you, that's kind of a challenge and definitely a little bit of a thankless job because anything could happen at any moment that maybe upends some of the narrative that you've put together here, some of the things you've looked back at. There could be a treasure trove of new emails. This is not as if it's somebody, we even find that about presidents from long ago. So why did you take on that challenge of writing about somebody that's contemporary, that's certainly in living memory, knowing that the full story couldn't be told yet to completion? Dean, that's, that's a wonderful question. And it's one of those questions that keep historians up at night. Uh, <laughs> that is, what is the next generation of folks going to say about this subject? And of course, every generation of historians write their own histories. Uh, that's the reason we're still getting Lincoln biographies. Uh, he's the most written about person that I can think of in the history of the world. But that that's exactly the thinking that is some some new source might show up or new ways of thinking about old sources. So in the case of this particular book, I can remember back in 2008 uh, when I and millions of others were just riveted by the 
Democratic presidential primaries, uh, where you have two fairly even matched U.S. senators, uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Rodham Clinton, who are running for the Democratic nomination, and either one of them winning it would have been historic. So I, and I imagine everyone else who was watching and paying attention, knew that I was looking at something historic happening. And of course, for us historians, that's, you know, we always are seeing things that turn out to be historic, but at the same time, uh, we usually don't, the average one of us, there's those historians who do write recent history, as I guess I'm one now, but we usually are most comfortable looking at things in the rearview mirror and not through the windshield, the front glass. That is, we, we look at history, we look at, we look at topics after some dust has settled and we have some hindsight and we have some perspective, we have the long view and so forth. So uh, again, looking at the Obama presidency or looking at him win the presidency in 2008, I knew something historic had happened and I wanted to write that history. And of course the challenge is exactly what you put your finger on. How do you think historically about something that's not quite history, so to speak, that is something that you're watching unfold and you're taking notes uh, and you're trying to figure out what is the through line for what you're looking at. What are going to be the legacies? What are people going to be thinking about in 10, 15, 50 years from now? So that was the challenge of, of writing about Obama in the moment or shortly after the moment. Uh, that is trying to anticipate what the major themes, major legacies, major takeaways uh, would be years from now. Uh, of course, it, it gives you the impulse of, well, you know, since I don't know that, I'm going to collect everything. I'm going to collect all the sources I can find. I'm going to build as big an archive as I can build so that I don't miss anything. Of course, it's kind of a fallacy that you can do all of the research and you can tell all of the story. The story, as you're saying, is going to unfold and other historians are going to come forward and his personal papers at some point in the future, his presidential papers will be released and so forth. And that will fill things out. But I found that in writing about him and the publishing a book four years uh, after he left the presidential uh, mansion and left the White House, that there was plenty of sources and I had built an archive that included government records, of course, the news cycle stuff, and it's more than enough of that sort of thing just to do a book just on the news cycle. I talked to people, their interviews, of course, there were books by other scholars who came out, Obama wrote his own books, people around him wrote their own books. So I found no lack of sources in regard to putting together a history of his presidency, which has a big biographical component to it. But of course, that was the challenge of the piece to wearing a historian's hat to watch something unfold and try to historicize it in a way that uh, brings some value in regard to trying to understand the legacy of what you just saw. Uh, I think the bigger value was that uh, when people read this, hopefully read this book in 50 or 100 years ago, uh, a historian writing about this or thinking about this in the moment, I think, has a kind of value. Political scientists, sociologists, ethnographers do it all the time. That's, you know, they write about and think about and analyze things as they're happening. Political, science look, political scientist looks at the elections that just happened and tries to understand the demographic shape and texture of, of who voted how and what states did what and so forth. Uh, it's not that scholars don't do this sort of thing. It's just historians don't do a lot of it. But that was the real, I don't know if that was the fun of it, but that was a, a challenge that uh, I think has some value. A historian in the moment of something or shortly after the moment of something happening, trying to figure out 
what the legacy is, what the through line is, and to put something in historical perspective. Yeah, the thing about the black president is you could have written it 50 years from now, it'd be a different book. And mm -hmm. the, it is important to get that down because we do think, well, why, why write about something we're, we're living through? Because especially now we have video, everyone has their phone as, as kind of an historian on their, on their phones now, right? There's video, there's audio that we live through it. So I think that's, that's important to have your book here because people will look back in 50 years as they do with many of the biographies that I have on my shelf and say, oh, this is what they were thinking about him right after this guy left the White House. This is what they thought about him 20 years later when he enjoyed a little bit of a renaissance or something new came out. And for me, I've read a biography on each of our presidents and I always try to find a, something is that, that's a positive legacy. And that's even for guys like James K. Polk or John Tyler or Andrew Johnson who really challenge you to find, find something decent about them. Maybe it's just their relationship with their wife. And unlike somebody who comes into the White House that's freshly elected that has, okay, what's my legacy going to be? You have somebody who, the minute he takes his hand off that Lincoln Bible and is sworn in, he has his place in history set. It, it almost would matter. They could never take that away from him after he achieves that. His legacy is cemented. That's the first line in, in, the, in the bio, in the biography, in the obituary. That's it. He has it. So I wonder how the black president, when you write this book, how does that both free and constrain him in office because there is still that hard job of governing. There will be another campaign in four years when he when he runs for re-election. So how do you hope people will see that, put that first line aside and say, oh, by the way, he was not just a symbol. He was not just a token in the White House, but he had to do some hard work governing. And now I'm going to tell you the story in my book. Yeah, really, that, that is the story of the book. I, I think that, uh, the, the, as you were saying, the obituary, the, you know, all of the history books that come after, you know, first African-American president. And for a lot of people, who, some voters, uh, especially black voters, that was it. You know, if whatever happened after that election, you know, OK, whatever. But that election was the legacy. I started the book with a conversation with my dad was in his 70s at the time who had never voted before, although he was in the 70s and he was inspired to go vote for this guy. He didn't think it was possible for uh, an African-American man or, or woman to get elected to this highest office in the land. And it happens. And for him and I think millions of other people, you know, he could go to his grave after that. My dad who was in his 70s. He's since, since passed uh, and know that this was possible in this country. And my dad would have, of course, 70 years at the time of long view of American history, civil rights movement, Great Depression, World War II and so forth. Uh, but uh, the, the through line for the, for the presidency for him was that this happened in my lifetime, that a black guy, given the history of this country, it was possible in America, maybe only in America, for this guy from a minority group with this biography, with this family, get selected. Uh, the so <laughs> the name, as he often said, right? He often said the funny name, right? So yeah, with with this funny <laughs> name, as Obama said, skinny guy with the funny name from Hawaii, you know, with this this mixed race background, gets selected. So it, it it says something very powerful about the country, especially in that particular moment. But of course, after that, you have to govern, you have to deliver, uh, especially if you're interested in uh, re-election. And the vast vast majority of American presidents uh, are interested in re-election. So I think. Well, I know, I think we all know in hindsight that the expectations of his presidency, maybe this is for most presidencies, or 
off the charts and, and way too high. Um, he came into office when the economy was in free fall. Uh, we were losing hundreds of thousands of jobs per month uh, in late 2008, early 2009. We were in two wars, which were going sideways, uh, not going too well. And, you know, people were losing their homes and, and just a bad time. Uh, so I, he comes in office uh, on the mantra of hope and change. And I think that, and then, of course, it's this historic presidency and so forth, uh, this guy getting elected. So the the expectations are through the roof for him. And I think being the first African-American president, he he has the burden, and you allude to this in your question, the burden of representation. One of his daughters, his oldest daughter, Leah, right as he gets elected president, right as I think they're going to the inauguration in January 2009, she tells him, first, African-American president, you better be good. And I think that she sort of captures sort of the burden of representation. That is, he has to do a credible job. He has to be a serious, competent. There are going to be missteps and mistakes and so forth, but he can't flame out in the middle of this presidency, or he may be the last African-American president. Of course, it's unfair, that is, to judge 40 million people by the performance of one person who just happens to share the same pigmentation. Uh, but at the same time, it's the nature of how uh, I think American race relations, how we think about race, especially after how we think about the first person to do something. That first person is a stand-in for the whole group. You know, if Hillary Clinton had won the White House in 2008 or 2016, she, rightly or wrongly, is a reflection on all women. Uh, and people would have judged her her presidency as, you know, this first president, as female president, you know, uh, as speaking to the capacities of women generally in regard to their ability to be commanders in chief uh, um, or uh, chief executives. So I think there's less freedom in this for Obama than there is obligation and the burden of representation. I don't think he's freed until really he stepped out in January of 2017. I think the whole time it's a performance, it's a tight wire act. Um, he's trying not to fall into all the stereotypes uh, about African-Americans. He, he, he at no time is wearing the angry black man look. He knows that's not a good look for uh, a president for, for a black president and, and Michelle Obama is the first African-American first lady uh, knows that's not a good look for for her as well. So it's a performance the whole time. And I think it's a tough performance in, in a lot of instances. He certainly had that feeling. You could tell when he walked in a room, he talks about when he had his first job at a big corporation. And he says, I felt like I was behind enemy lines and how he had to perform a certain way and how he had to, he knew what people's expectations were and all across the board. And that's something that you cover here in The Black President where it's what Alice Roosevelt Longworth, who was Theodore Roosevelt's daughter, eldest child, she said about her brother, Ted, poor Ted, if he, he gets compared to his father everywhere, if he, if he walks across the street, you have three guys that say, well, his father would have done it better. And if he walks across perfectly, they say, I ah, did it just as old Teddy would have done it. So the, the, the guy can't win, right? You either do it perfectly and satisfy everybody, or you do it like, oh, wow, he's, uh, you know, you, 
uh, I kind of recoil it's even saying it, but people will say, well, wow, he's just as good as a white president. Well, gee, yeah. And and a lot of people don't even realize it. Who maybe think that they're very aware and, and voted for him, but they, they have that little bit of doubt and a little bit like people in, in certain endeavors, they say, well, he's the first black person to coach a Super Bowl, let's say, and people doubt that. So he has that all on him, as you said, walking that narrow path. And then on top of that, Everybody's saying, okay, now finish the work of Lincoln and Martin Luther King Jr. So that, that's like, oh, gee, no, no pressure at all here, right? Exactly. And again, it's an impossible position to be in uh, for all the reasons that you just said, Dean. There are all these other standards that you're going to be uh, uh, placed against. Um, the 43 other white guys who were before you, so they're going to be the standard. Um, and and then there's going to be the standard of, ironically, you know, being the, the first African-American president, there are those who I think thought that that was by itself magical and special and so forth, and he was going to be able to, you know, split oceans and, 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 and walk, walk on water and so forth because that was so new and, and different and because of the situation the country was in. Uh, so this guy's gonna come in with this transformational vision and all this hope and change and big majorities in the Congress and so forth. Uh, but the, again, the expectations were just through the roof. They could not be satisfied by anyone. But I think you, you're exactly right that there would always be that measuring stick that is, how is this guy gonna do it different, better, the same as the 43 guys before him? who are not going to be judged quite the same way uh, because they were all more they were all white guys and and that the racial element was not there for judging them i think the assumption was that they were each their own individual person and you don't judge reagan by nixon's you know failures you don't judge abraham lincoln by by uh, george washington and so forth uh, that they were all their unique persons, and certainly you're not going to uh, judge the, you know, the, the talents, the, the failings, the shortcomings of all white people based on what a white president does. However, in the minds of I think a lot of people, you may judge the group African Americans as a group based on what this particular African American does in the White House, uh, and I think that that again. It's the burden of being in a in a minority group, uh, in whether it's a religious minority, ethnic minority, minority, uh, racial minority, gender minority. Uh, it's the burden of being in such a group that's been marginalized, and then one sort of bubbles to the top and it has access to power. The group will be judged by the performance of this one. That is, if this one is able to slip into the door of power and go down the the corridors of power. Uh, the group, for the most part, left out of those corridors of power uh, are going to probably be really, really loyal and want to see what happens to that one that slips through. And that one that slips through is going to be under a microscope more intense than they ever e experienced it. Uh, so I, I think that's what's going on with Obama. He's very, I think, conscious of it. And he, he uh, I think, for the most part, handles that, that the intensity of that scrutiny pretty well. Um, uh, to the point that I, his his whole goal was to make this look normal, uh, to have a first black family for eight years, uh, and for us to look at him with the same metrics and judge him by the same criteria as we would any other president. So that was the whole thing to to make this look normal. But we all know it was not normal. 
to have a black president, a black first family in the White House for that many years. Uh, but I think his, his whole hope was that I'm in a lineage of 43 other people and judge me by the standards you judge these other heads of state. Don't, don't judge me by, you know, the standard you judge a civil rights leader like King. Don't judge me by Jesse Jackson, this guy who ran for the presidency before me. Don't judge me by these standards that you're not going to judge everyone else by uh, who sat in this office. Judge me by the standards of these 43 predecessors, um, which would be the normal thing to do. It reminds you of Margaret Thatcher when they asked her at one point, what does it feel like to be a female prime minister? And she said, I don't know. I never experienced the alternative. So <laughs> you, you go in, you have the job. Like, OK, you're, you're president. He's even though that's the title of your book, the black president. And that's the way people will look at you. And sometimes they'll say the Republican president or Democratic president. And of course, you're just the president. And for a long time, it was just the president. And I, I really noticed that here reading your book, The Black President. And you mentioned America there and how maybe this could only happen in America. And that brought me to my next question, because I remember reading at the time that Barack Obama's father back in Kenya, even somebody of his tribe in Kenya would have been considered for the presidency and that they would have been kept out. And I thought that's fascinating to me or noteworthy anyway, because we tend to look at a group and say, oh, okay, everybody's the same. They're monolithic, as you were just saying. Uh, I know with Greek people, there's 2,000 islands. They're they're very they're very regional. There are people, for instance, with my last name that were not welcomed in Greece when they came. They considered them Turks as refugees from the genocide, and they can't even agree on one day to commemorate the Greek genocide at the hands of the Turks. Everyone has their own little one, so there's there's division within these groups, and yet. I guess because we're busy or what have you, some people just because they're ignorant, they lump everybody together. So my question here about the black president is, you talk about his base being complex, layered and fractured. You talked about the hope that people have when he comes in, he comes in on hope. That slogan is a great political slogan because it means whatever the person hearing it wants to mean. How was how were those divisions manifest in the black community where people on the outside would have assumed Okay, everybody must support him right to the last minute. Right, yes. So that was one of the more fascinating things about the research and doing the book. Uh, and, and that is, it's as much a commentary on America as it is on this guy who's sitting in the Oval Office for those eight years. It's as much a commentary about uh, the Black community, uh, all the various divisions and, and interests and, and groupings and uh, porousness. Uh, of the black community, even the notion of a black community is is a is a problematic notion because it's um, uh, there. There are so many layers of class and gender division and region and and so forth. So even thinking about a black community or African American community in, in any sort of monolithic, singular, unitary way is problematic. So I I dug into this this notion of of black community, black America, and so forth, and wow. On the one hand, the way that African Americans vote would suggest, okay, these folks are more or less on the same page. You know, whoever the Democratic nominee for the president is gonna get 85, 90% of the black vote. Okay. Peel that back though, and all of these discussions and all of these this discourse and all this pushback and so forth is there. Part of the I, I think the surprises that I saw in the book was that certain constituencies, certain segments of quote unquote black America had these 
bruising debates about what Obama should be doing and what he shouldn't be doing. Uh, one of the, one facet of that debate is the notion that there should have been more targeted policies coming out of his administration that that were designed to address the plight of those at the bottom of this recession, which we later call the Great Recession. So African-Americans at the worst of it are suffering almost a 17% unemployment rate, which is really depression level unemployment, not just recessionary unemployment. So there are those uh, in academia, in the clergy, uh, the Congressional Black Caucus in the Congress who said, you know, who were pushing Obama, hey, look, you know, it's fine and well, this hope and change and, you know, these universalist policies that are supposed to lift the tide for all boats and so forth. But you have a constituency, President Obama, that went out and voted for you. 96% of their votes went for you in 2008 and 93% in 2012. And you're not tailoring policies to address, wow, across the board, a mass incarceration, unemployment, home foreclosures, urban decay, education issues. Uh, where, where are the policies, you know, if, if politics is a transaction and transactional sport, you know, quid pro quo, we vote for you, you do something for us. Where is the you do something for us part of it? Uh, academicians, Black ac academicians, I think the, the debates over these sorts of political approaches and strategies is probably uh, one, the most serious debate and also the most bitter debate uh, in regard to this, this idea that Obama's just not coming through, that he got people to come out at election time. And then after the election, you know, where are, you know, where are the policies that deal with criminal justice reform? Where are the policies that deal with poverty and so forth? Obama's own response to that would be that I'm the president of the entire United States. I can't privilege a particular group. Uh, you know, we can't slice and dice Americans into particular groups and, and target some and, and not benefit the others with policy. That doesn't sell to everyone. Black academia and also in, in politics as well, whether it's the Congressional Black Caucus, whether it's Black Republicans who are saying something completely different about Obama and, and they're stressing that this guy is a failure and he's just an old time liberal and big spender and so forth. So out of this comes, uh, I think, a, a, a strengthened sort of Black conservative movement that we see challenging him at every turn, whether it's a Herman Cain in 2012, whether it's a Ben Carlson running for president in 2016. So again, if, if you just look under the surface of Black America, you see all of these responses of Black clergy who hate the fact that Obama embraced same-sex marriage, or Black conservatives who think he's got it all wrong in regard to tax policy uh, and, and everything else. And black academicians who say, you know, this guy is talking one way at election time and he's he's not following through after the elect after the election and so forth. And again, across the board, the sort of debates and the sort of cleavages and the sort of responses to Obama among African Americans, very diverse. Even if at election time, uh, they look at the two choices and decide that. Uh, you know, whether in a sort of positive, enthusiastic way they want to sort of support Obama or it's sort of, okay, you know, the, the lesser of two evils. So, uh, uh, you know, I'd rather have Obama than McCain or Romney. So we'll just go with Obama reluctantly um, as, as Black voters. So I think it would be correct to say that Black voters, the Black community over the course of his presidency was pretty solidly behind him. It would be incorrect to say that they were unanimously 
so, or even that the, the votes that are the percentage of the black vote. And again, the percentage of the black vote does not necessarily mean, you know, uh, all black voters. A lot of people don't vote in this country. We have- um, uh, Your dad, your dad, right? Your dad didn't vote. This yeah, is the first yeah. time your dad he, voted, he didn't right? vote until 2008. So it would be wrong to say that African-Americans were in lockstep, lockstep behind Obama just based on vote returns or proportion that voted for him. Again, there was a, all along the way a very rich and, 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 and often fraught conversation about the meaning of his presidency. You said that people complained that oh, you say one thing on the campaign trail and then in office you do you do another thing. You don't fulfill those promises. And I, I started to smile a little bit because I thought, well, there you go. That, that's the part of this. That's the president part of this. Right. That's that's every politician, especially when you ride in on on a slogan that that is something that is is, as I said, really means whatever a person hearing it hears. You know, this was something that's the second half of your book. You talk about uh, Fury in the age of Obama is the is the reaction part to Obama. And then you think of, yeah, this was the same thing with Make America Great Again. Some people heard that and said, well, whoa, what do you mean by that? Other people said, oh, you mean the, the safe streets and we have secure borders. We have all the positive policy things. And hope and change was was the mirror of that. Like, well, hope, we, we all want to have hope and you want change, but change to what? And so that, that struck me when you were speaking there. But since we're getting into that second part of your book there and about how this community isn't any more monolithic than fans of a baseball team, let's say, where you have some people live and die with every game, other people just wear the hat, right? So you could have varying levels of support. Plus, you, you may not like the other team. You may really hate the other team. Your, your favorite team is, right, the New York Giants and anybody who's playing the Cowboys, as they say. And so as a political observer and someone who loves to break that stuff down, for people that are laymen that aren't really thinking that deeply into it, not to puff myself up, it is so great to me, fascinating thing about human nature and about people that the New York Times analysis finds that 9% of Obama voters in 2012 went for Donald Trump in 2016. And that's millions of people. And for me, I like to have my expectations subverted and shake me up. And we have an image of an Obama voter, we have an image of a Trump voter, we have an image of a Hillary voter and of, say, a Bernie Sanders voter, but people are much more fluid than maybe we would like to think they are, just as you were saying there about within the black community. So how would you like people here who pick up the black president and get to know him be better able to break down that complexity to understand that within a community, people are individuals and they make their vote and also, if you're in politics, don't write off people and say, well, hey, we're, we're never going to go ask for their vote. But what really understand we are individuals, we should be approached as individuals. And as voters, we should think like individuals. How do you hope people will get that from the black president? Yeah, I, I think that that's a major through line, Dean, of the book uh, that uh, Obama's. And, and this is most any president who's looking to get reelected. Much of the time is creating coalition that, or, or a coalition that can get you elected and then reelected. Re so there's always this, the calculations and the measuring. And if I say this on this day, what how's this constituency and this constituency and this constituency think about it? Uh, and do I lose more voters embracing same-sex marriage than I than I'll gain? Uh, do I do do I alienate more people when I embrace? Uh, criminal justice reform uh, than I gained. If I say this about the police behavior in this particular incident, 
you know, who's going to be offended by that in this community, this community, this community, and so forth. So it's, it's, there are always those calculations that are going on among the political strategists, among politicians and, and others uh, in regard to how particular segments of the electorate are going to respond to things. So they, the, the politicians and the, and, the, and the strategists and so forth, I think are already pretty savvy in terms of messaging and how messages play and the idea that we are talking to uh, a, a very diverse electorate and you can't be all things to all people, although you're gonna try to. The hope and change thing is more or less, as you were saying, is squishy enough and nebulous and, and vague enough to throw against the wall and maybe it sticks with a lot of folks uh, and people can just project on it, it, their fantasies and dreams and so forth about what hope and change means or what make America great means. Uh, again, um, it's vague enough and squishy enough uh, to, for people to load into it whatever they want to load into those particular slogans. Uh, however, at the same time, uh, politicians have to be aware that they are talking about, in, they're talking to individual people who are going to vote self-interest and however they construe self-interest. So you do have to have a message that, you have to have a core message, I think. And even if it's based around a, a, a slogan, it has to be some core to it. But you also have to have ways of talking across demographic lines, across regional lines and so forth, so that you build that coalition that gets you, you know, the, the majority of the electoral college vote. Uh, so in the case of those voters that you just mentioned in 2016, shifting from Obama to Trump voters. I think that's was surprising in the moment, but it's not surprising in hindsight. I say that because again, if you poll 100% of the American electorate, 99% would have said they expected Hillary Clinton to win. And I think the sort of the belief in the inevitability of her winning militated against her winning. Uh, a lot of people just sat out, uh, including the African American much of the African, well, not much, but enough to have cost her the election, the African-American vote that sat out in 2016 that showed up for Obama in 2012. And again, that was across the board. I think that folks thought that, well, why I need to vote, you know, since she has this locked up. Uh, so I think that that was going on. Uh, I think also that the American electorate has a, a maximum attention span for a single president for about eight years. They're really in many instances, tired of you after four years, but you might be able to squeak by and get reelected. But after eight years, our attention span, we want something new. We don't necessarily want a part three from you know somebody else in your party. Um, so I, I think that that was going on and, and again, militated against Hillary Clinton being Barack Obama's third term, so to speak. And several other things were going on that suggested that People, voters were, as you're saying, the voting self-interest. Uh, they're reading into these slogans, things that make sense to them. They are willing to change up and swap out colors and flavors, uh, depending on, you know, again, what they think is going to be best for them. Um, and again, the attention span at, at maximum is about 
you know, six to eight years, uh, and then they're tired of a particular candidate and, and often their party as well. And we have this, and it might be that's, that might be healthy for our system to have that sort of turnover. But I think that's what's going on in 2016 that speaks to a very complicated electorate and that, that swings, we often have big swings uh, in terms of what our partisan identifications are or who we elect to represent us in the Congress and the presidency and, and so forth. Part of that has to do with the, the nature of our system, a two-party system is either or, there's no middle ground. You know, we, we have all these third parties and things, but seriously, we just have two parties. So if you get tired of the Democrats, the only other option is the Republicans. So it's so often a hard swing rightward. You get tired of these guys after a while, and you will, then it's back to the left and so forth. So it because we have a two-party system and people have to choose between left and right in these two different parties, I don't know, it, it looks more surprising that a person could vote for Obama in 2012 and then vote for Trump in 2016, as opposed to Hillary Clinton. But again, given the nature of the system, I imagine if many of those people could vote for some middle candidate between left and right, we'd have much more of that as opposed to people voting for the two extremes. People also wanted to be on board and vote historic. And I recall with my own father who was a registered Democrat, never changed from back in the, almost in the New Deal days. He's, he's not quite that old he's, and he's still with us at 86. But I remember during the New Jersey primary, by then the, it was sewn up in 88 for Dukakis who obviously was Greek. So everyone, again, expects monolithic. Every single person I had to meet had to had to ask me how excited I was about Mike Dukakis. I said, Mike Dukakis isn't excited about Mike Dukakis. Why should I? Just because I'm Greek. But uh, it would just, uh, but my dad said, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to the primary. I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote for Jesse Jackson, even though it's, it's wrapped up because I feel like let, let them be forced to say no to him. Uh, he can't have the nomination. This is, in fact, what they try to do with the superdelegates Hillary does in 2008 with Barack Obama. And, hey, it's not your turn yet. And this is something that we often hear in politics. But I I think especially to tell an African-American it's not time yet is something that is we've kind of been waiting a long time. I think it's well past time. You can understand that feeling. And ultimately, he does win the nomination, even to his surprise. I believe you've, you've spoken about this in the black president that he ran and it yeah, maybe maybe you could aspire to a cabinet position and usually it would be the political move just to shove you off to HUD, right? Housing and urban, urban development. You must, you must know about, about that and want to do that. And people, I'm sure would have been, would have been fine at that with the community organizing experience in Chicago. And then he starts to gain momentum and he surprises even himself. And that, that's pretty fascinating. People become compelled by his story. So that's certainly something you cover here in the black president. There's a wave and even he is riding that wave and, and caught up in it and pushed forward. And he says later, maybe, maybe it was too soon for me that, that I came along. And that's all fascinating stuff in the book. And I imagine for you uncovering documentation about that while writing The Black President must have been a, a lot of fun for you and kept you going, pushed the wave of the book forward so you finished it. Yeah, and, and that was one of the things, Dean, in regard to writing in the moment or writing shortly after the moment is that you're watching this thing, I guess, sort of riding the wave of it as an observer uh, and it, as an historian who's trying to get you know some sort of perspective and distance from what you're watching up close and personal. So it's a sort of double vision that's going on. That is, I'm collecting all the things I can get my hands on. So it's you know this, this memoir and government documents and YouTube videos of speeches and it's 
you know, it's interviews with folks and so forth. So you're collecting all these things, but at the same time, you're anticipating the next thing. Okay, well, how's this Tea Party thing going to shake out? Okay, how's this, you know, uh, Wall Street protest going to shake out? Okay, this, this Black Lives Matter thing that just cropped up in response to police violence. So you're, you're, you're sort of anticipating, okay, what, what, what's next? What's next? No, what, what's next? And what are the documents? What, who do I need to talk to? What are the sources going to come out of here? Let me see all the videos that get uploaded on YouTube about this, that, and the other. Uh, so that was, that was both exciting. And again, it's an odd place for a historian to be the sort of, we, we usually are not watching to see what's next. We, we already know what's next because it's a story that's happened before in the past and we're, again, using the hindsight of the present to read the past uh, as historians. We're not sort of watching something historic happen and trying to figure out why is it historic and how we're gonna document this going forward. So it was very exciting in that way, the sort of insider, outsider, historian, observer, um, person that's trying to document something that's unfolding before your eyes and think about it and conceptualize it in historical ways uh, with the, without the benefit of hindsight uh, and trying to identify, okay, in 50 years from now, are people going to be talking about the Affordable Care Act as this big achievement? Or, or is, are they going to be looking at all of these presidents in the early 21st century as having failed on climate change where we, you know, in 50 years from now, uh, have a, a climate catastrophe? Is that the big through line for the Obama presidency? Or is the through line, what's going on in the Republican Party and, and what the Republican Party has, has become in 21st century, or tw uh, the first couple of decades in 21st century? So you're looking for through lines. Okay, what, what are the major, major legacies, themes, you know, thoroughfares uh, of this particular presidency and how to talk about it? Uh, but yeah, I was, you know, the, the book was an exciting project insofar as uh, I hadn't seen the movie yet. Uh, it wasn't <laughs> a case in which you're writing about Lincoln, and you know what you know the you know the thousand Lincoln biographies out there. So you you know that the movie is maybe you don't you didn't see this particular two second thing, and you didn't notice. And somebody story writes a book on that two seconds uh, about Lincoln's presidency, but in this case, you didn't you know. I was looking at the movie and then writing the book about the movie as, as it was happening and then trying to write the book about the movie in ways that would be helpful to think about it, the movie as a, as a complete thing, uh, this, this Obama presidency. So that was, uh, again, the challenge, but also the, I think that was maybe the payoff uh, that is having someone with a historian's perspective observing things with that, that particular hat on and then after, immediately after uh, a few years, you know, after digesting his presidency for a few years, then to write uh, what will, you know, hopefully be known as the first serious presidency or book about the Obama presidency in its entirety. You're enjoying my conversation with Professor Claude A. Clegg III. He's the author of that book that he was just speaking about, that first draft of history. It's called The Black President. Hope and Fury in the Age of Obama. Visit him at ClaudeClegg.com and at ClaudeClegg on Twitter. That last name is spelled C-L-E-G-G. Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles, says of the Black president, this volume is more than a history of the Obama presidency. It is a summary of the era's most searing lessons on race and identity, 
a prism through which to understand our nation's fractured present and a roadmap for building a more just society. Professor Clegg, I like the idea that we look back and we all want unity, right? We want unity on our terms. It's a little bit like a marriage in politics, right? We, we want to get along. If only they would listen to me <laughs> and then, or a friendship, right? Come on. Why can't we both agree that we do what I want? And it's, it's fascinating that Mayor Garcetti talks about that there and says, sees the fractures today. And as a politician realizes deep down a, a good politician, I think a good servant of the people that at the very least, that's what people want, you know, cause we're, we're a little bit, even though they work for us, we're a little bit all like the audience or we're like, children or we're like family members let's say because you know we we elect them they're not exactly like parents but uh it, it's a feeling that you get where you say gee i i don't want to see you fighting i i know that there's a hard core on both sides that wants to just see you call the other side jerks and call them names and just beat them and there's a place for that like in football i mentioned the sports analogy certainly we like to see in hockey a fight sometimes as a hockey fan myself but you also want to see sportsmanship you don't hit a guy when he's down you do certain things in politics lead us you're supposed to be leaders we call you leaders for family for barack obama that idea of unity comes from his parents and i think often of his quote about his mother he said when he would hang out with real hardcore black militants and they would start talking about the white person is the devil he said I would think of my mother's smile and I would realize I can't buy into that 100 percent it would pull him back and speaking of governing I wanted to get in a question that Bijan C. Bain was kind enough to offer up to us he said yeah I'll definitely do this I've long admired Professor Clegg's work I interviewed him twice. His books are Elgin Baylor, The Man Who Changed Basketball, and Martha's Vineyard Basketball, How a Resort League Defied Notions of Race and Class. And by the way, you could see his Elgin Baylor biography right up there next to your book. I put it in good company with the Black President. He also is the writer-producer of Six Degrees of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He speculated how Obama might have navigated what is the COVID-19 pandemic something that does have racial components in it. People are concerned. There's a lot in the African-American community that don't want to get vaccinated with, with good reason historically. So how do you think he would have handled COVID-19 in a way that would have informed his opponents and harshest critics' sense of him? And he already dealt with Ebola, so maybe you can make some informed, or certainly you can, speculation on that. How would a President Obama have dealt with this global pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question, a great you know counter counterfactual since we it didn't actually happen but I think it's a, a, a good way to sort of think about Obama and um, his character and his political methodology he's a technocrat that is he's one of those folks who would be following the science he believes in uh, expertise uh, and and surrounding yourself with people who have the resumes that you were mentioning Dean uh, people have experience in the education and so forth and so he's a he's a technocrat and in, in so far as if you get enough information, enough expertise together, uh, you can solve you know, a lot of the problems that the country is facing. So he would have been relying upon the scientists and the epidemiological views of what was going on and those who study pandemics and, and so forth. I think that, however, uh, we wouldn't have seen lockdowns under him any more you know, um, absolute than we've seen under uh, Presidents Trump or Biden. Uh, we would not have seen, I think we, it would have been a bumpy ride, uh, just as we've had with these, these 
current two presidents, uh, Trump and Biden, in regard to the pandemic. I think that there would have been limits to what he could do for any given population. You rightly said that African-Americans uh, have suffered uh, in ways that have been uh, unique to them and in ways that's not uh, not unique to them. Uh, as you know, frontline workers, people in overrepresented in service industries and so forth, people in crowded urban spaces, people overrepresented in being uh, uninsured. Uh, so African-Americans have, have experienced the pandemic in ways that are worse than, in many cases, than other populations. Uh, life expectancy of African-Americans has gone down further during the pandemic than it has with Hispanics and whites, Asians, and, and so forth. So he would have been facing that more dire crisis among African-Americans. Uh, and the question would be, you know, do you target this group? Do you target resources? Do you target healthcare to this particular group, public health messaging to this particular group who's suffering worse? Or is it the sort of universalist tide that lifts all boats? We're not targeting anyone in particular. We're targeting everyone. My, my sense is that he would have been himself, as he would have been the universalist. Um, you know, we're going to help everyone. You know, I can't just target this particular group. If he was true to form, he would not have overtly targeted the people who are faring worse in this. However, because again, it looks like favoritism. It looks like you know he's he's privileging his his quote unquote own group and so forth. And he did not want that look because that could be easily weaponized by his opponents. To say, hey, look, this you know this guy is actually discriminating against white voters, and he's helping the black voters and so forth. We should be helping everyone. He was self conscious about coming off in that way. And I don't think he would have if he had been steering our response to the coronavirus. Ironically. His vice president, now President Biden, has used that very language. That is, I could not imagine a Barack Obama saying that, you know, the black community has always had my back and I'm going to have their back, which Biden has said. I can't imagine Barack Obama saying, I'm going to elect or select a black woman for the Supreme Court. He may have done that, although he never did, uh, but uh, he may have done it, but I, in the sort of yeah, this is a lot. There's going to be a black woman in this slot. So Obama, I didn't think, I don't think had the sort of leeway to name race in the ways that Biden has leeway to do, or at least has taken the, the, the latitude to do. Uh, and I think that his response to the pandemic would have shown that he that he you know just couldn't target certain groups. He he may have in a sort of surreptitious way tried to help the least advantaged by doing it in a sort of class oriented way, uh, helping those in poverty. It's kind of like the Affordable Care Act does, uh, which because African Americans are disproportionately disproportionately represent among the poorest population in this country, helping the poor helps them disproportionately. So in a sort of underground or a sort of um, uh, indirect way you're helping African-Americans uh, and Hispanics and others who are overrepresented among those who are, are less privileged and low wealth people in this country. But in regard to an approach that would have targeted certain groups that were faring worse in this pandemic, whether it's job loss or whether it's 
access to health care or whatever. I don't see him as having done that. So I think his response would have looked a lot like Joe Biden's response. He would have been all for the vaccinations, as he is. Um, people getting vaccinated and making those vaccinations uh, available free of charge widely. He would have been all for limited mask mandates, although I, I can't see him being able to push the states any harder than, let's say, Biden or Trump did. Uh, I just think that's ingrained in the in the DNA of this country, this this notion of I should have the liberty to do certain things the government shouldn't intervene. And we have a lot of state governments who that actually believe that way, too, and governors and state legislatures. So I, I don't know if his response would look appreciably different from Biden's response in particular. This, this relies upon the experts and expertise and pushing the vaccines and pushing employers to require vaccinations and so forth without the sort of, you know, zero COVID policy of, let's say, China, which, you know, just locks down the country. We wouldn't have had lockdowns or anything under Obama. And thus, I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't think it, again, his response would look really different from uh, the response of, of Biden. And I'm not sure if African-Americans would have been any more you know, willing to go get vaccinated, maybe on the margins with a black president saying go get vaccinated, as opposed to Biden and a black uh, vice president saying the same thing. I want to quote from the New York Times review where Orlando Patterson says that the election shattered centuries of ingrained pessimism. For me, when I was on the bus going across the George Washington Bridge from Englewood, New Jersey, on the day of the election, this is a town that has a big black population. It was in the Green Book. I would point that out to people, the bar there. Uh, Reverend Al Sharpton lives there. You would think that that bus would have been a party bus going into the city the day after Barack Obama was elected. And instead, it was people saying that well, they're going to kill him. He's going to be assassinated. It's just a matter of when. I felt sad for the people that said that because they were missing out on some joy there. And I, and all they could think of was that pessimism. So I wanted to ask you how your book, The Black President, gives some much needed optimism, but also motivates people that are there that think, well, I have no chance because this book is about a two term president. It is not about a president that lost his life in office or was otherwise driven out. So how do you hope that people get that optimism and maybe a little bit of that sense of unity about their country from the black president? Yeah, I, I think that just the fact that a Barack Obama is possible uh, as far as becoming not only, as you mentioned, being a president, but two two term president. And pretty popular going out of office um, in 2017 says something tremendous about the country, about the possibilities of America that a lot of people didn't think. You know, again, uh, I start the book with a conversation with my dad. He was one of those skeptics, you know, and that, you know, they're not going to elect a black guy. And if they do, you know, elect a black guy, he's going to be in danger all the time and so forth. Uh, but he catches the spark of, you know, I want to participate in this history making. I'm going to register to vote here in my 70s. I'm going to register to vote late 70s. Uh, never voted before, but I'm going to bother to do that. I'm going to bother to go and vote for this guy twice. Aside from his generation, which probably was more pessimistic about race relations because they had grown up in Jim Crow and segregation, seen the civil rights movement and so forth. And then think about the younger generation, my son, whose political consciousness, he's born in 2001, when, when he first knew that there was a White House and that we, this country, its chief executive was a president and they lived in the White House, it was Barack Obama. His first sense of who led, led the country 
it was this black guy and not just my son, but tens of millions of other young people who came of age politically. And it was a black first family in the White House for eight years. I, I don't know if we quite know yet as a country what that means for those young people. That is, that was normal to them. You know, it was, for us who have a longer view, it was really unusual, unique to have a first family that was not a white first family. But for that generation of early 20th century, 21st century folks who came of age in the first decade or so of the 20th, 21st century, a black first family was normal to them. And now a, a, a black vice president who's female is sort of normal to the folks who are coming of age now. And again, we'll have to get some distance from that and do a lot of polling and that sort of thing to see what that really means to the, these young people and their, their political development, their social development, their social maturity, how they think about race, how they think about the possibilities of America. But I think it's huge uh, that uh, we have a whole generation of young folks in particular uh, who grew up at a time in which there is this, this, this normality that includes a first family in the, de in the, uh, in the White House for almost a decade. Um, so I, I think that there's on that side, you know, if that's the glass half full, then, then those are the sorts of things that I think say very powerful um, things, uh, messages about what the country is and is capable of. Of course, there's a glass half empty too. That is um, the argument, and I, I see, I understand the argument, and I have some, I'm, a, I'm sympathetic to it to a point, uh, that you couldn't have Donald Trump without first having Barack Obama. Trump makes no sense, except he's the anti-Obama. Uh, he's the guy who's going to go in and turn back the clock. He's the guy who's gonna, going to go in and rail against this diversity, and we need to make America great again. Some thought that meant taking us back to the 50s. We need a border wall to keep all these Mexicans out. We need, you know, and we need uh, a Muslim ban to keep all these foreign Muslim people out. We need to make sure these blacks aren't voting 50 times during the elections and, and the uh, when elections roll around. So we need all this voter suppression policy and so forth. So um, that's the other side of the sword, the double-edged sword that, that is America is a country that allows someone like Barack Obama, who's more or less raised by a single parent in the middle of the ocean and it's not raised in privilege at all. The dad abandons him pretty early in life. He does sort of go through the ranks of being groomed as a political elite. He goes to Ivy League schools. He's, he's in Columbia and he's at Harvard and he's an Illinois state senator and he's a U.S. senator. So he's not just any black guy who becomes president. He is a certain kind of elite, um, that, um, a black elite who goes through a certain number of gates uh, that he's allowed to pass through until he gets the credentials that look like every, a lot of other presidents. Uh, so I, I think that uh, there's reason for optimism and Obama is an optimistic person. I think most presidents are optimistic people. They're, they have to be the country's number one cheerleader. So he's optimistic about the country, the whole hope and change and yes, we can and so forth. I think that's who he is, but at the same time, I think that he understands that the White House, the chief executive needs to project the positive about the country and needs to appeal for the kind of unity that you were mentioning, mentioning, Dean. But at the same time, I think that 
there's a very powerful backlash against this one the whole idea of Barack Obama and a black guy in the White House. And then two, the kind of multicultural democracy, multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy that we are evolving into and the fear of a good number of our countrymen and countrywomen that uh, they're being left behind, their voices are not being heard, they may be losing you know, power or, or access to power and privilege that they can become accustomed to enjoying and that Obama's election to the White House is emblematic uh, of that loss of, of power and privilege and, and status and so forth. So I, I think there are good reasons to be optimistic, but at the same time, there are good reasons to be very clear-eyed about the state of American democracy and the sort of backlash that we saw against Obama uh, in the person of Donald Trump and also in the, in the texture of what our country is now, the sort of threats that we see uh, and peril that we see American democracy going through. Fascinating that both Obama and Trump also benefited, I would say, as real outsiders. Obama is obviously the, the ultimate outsider, no one who looked like him before. Then Trump is our only president, never never served anywhere in government, never was a man in the military. And they both run against Hillary Clinton, who, to my way of thinking, after reading all these biographies behind me, I kind of like the person with the resume. I think that should be part of the of the job, right? I'm like one of those oh, political wonks I just mentioned that say, hey, it's it's not your turn, people. You, you can't come in here, Donald Trump. You, why don't you run for alderman at least or something? And you can't be. It's not your your time to be president. And you put in the you put in that work and you build a resume and then everybody goes and attacks it. So this was the case for both of them. And I think that's fascinating because if it hadn't been Hillary Clinton, in those elections who knows what what might have happened so this is a fascinating thing too in the black president where you're thrown in there and you are in the administration you're with him you're in his campaign barack obama and you're saying whoa now it's up to us to govern that's fascinating i want to close with a photo of barack obama the young barack obama and ask you to use it as a way to to explain to people what they're getting here in your book the man that they get to know it's the photo of him the young future president with his father. And it may be, it's one of the only ones I've ever seen of him with his father and not at a baseball game, not at, not at home on the couch. It's just at an airport. And he's just beaming this young man, Barack Obama. He's, he's clutching his father's hand that's slung over his shoulder, beaming at the camera. And you could see, you see the longing in his face. It's really a heartbreaking picture to me every, every time I see it. In part because his dad is kind of looking off to the side and has just the smile you'd put on for any photo. This is not the moment, make or break, in his life that he's seeing his son. Barack Obama has only one father, of course, but his father has other other children, other families, other other wives. And so it's not this moment. And you could just see it in this young kid's face. He clearly longed for his father. That approval is something he certainly carries into his presidency, that search for approval, rather. What does that photograph tell you? about the man that you hope people pick up the black president and meet in your book and see how he is a man unlike any other in one sense a president unlike any other but he is somebody who's just a human being he had a past he had a, a mother and father he had trouble he wasn't going to be perfect but what do you hope that that picture that that little kid what do you see in it and how will people when they pick up the black president get to meet that kid and see how he did what no one else had ever done before him Oh, wow. That, that's a great, that's an excellent question, especially the last, you know, a, a concluding question. Wow, that's a big one. 
Dean. Um, it's a great question. Um, I'm, that picture, it struck me in a similar way that, you know, we know the story. That's the last time he saw his father in life. He didn't know that at the time, but we know that looking at that picture, that that's an, Obama himself will later say that, you know, not having a relationship with his father was an opportunity lost uh, when he heard of his father's death in a car accident in the early 80s, which when he would have been in his 20s, uh, Obama Jr., the son. It's a picture that, you know, it's one of those pictures that states a thousand words, maybe a couple of thousand words. It says something about his father's investment in, in the son, uh, which was not as much as I think the son would have liked for it to be in. And I, I certainly, as a father myself, uh, think that there should have been much more investment from the father into the son's life. Uh, again, he was about 10, Obama, it was the early 1970s. His dad had come back to Hawaii to visit him and it was you know a couple of weeks and, and he was gone again and he never saw his father again. And that sticks with Obama in a number of ways. Uh, one, it makes him willing to sort of call out um, absentee fathers once he becomes a national candidate for the presidency and, he, and throughout his presidency, he's, he's calling out men who are not stepping up to the plate and in particular black men uh, who are not stepping up to the plate and for whatever reasons and being in their kids' lives as, as thoroughly uh, and as consistently as they should be. So there was those critics that said that, you know, he's just using this politically to appeal to white conservative voters uh, by saying that I'm willing to go after people in my own group and my own constituency. And thus, you know, you can't, you know, say that I'm a hyper partisan guy, you know, since I'm willing to go after African-American men. Uh, so there are those who are saying this is very crude political ca calculation that he's using to appeal to white moderates, maybe, perhaps so. Obama, his retort would be, as someone who lived it, you know, look at that picture. The last time I saw my dad, I was 10 years old. And before that, I, you know, I had no living consciousness of dad except for that moment when I was 10, I was 10 years old. I lived this. I experienced it. It's an epidemic. Absentee fathers in this country, especially in some communities, I have every right to speak about it. And everyone else should be speaking about this epidemic and finding out why our fathers uh, don't you know, uh, have the supports or don't have the mentality or whatever it is to stand up and stay in their families, you know, whether we need to, you know, do something in regard to job training or the educational system or the criminal justice system. Uh, this is a real problem. And as someone who lived it, who went through it, I have every right to speak about it. Uh, and that's a rub for him throughout his public life within the Black community. That is, there are those who say, He's bringing out dirty laundry simply to appeal to white moderates. And then there, there are those who are saying, you know, we, we need, you know, someone, you need the teacher to say it. We need the clergy person to say it. We need the neighbors to say it. We need the president to point out that this is a problem. You know, broken families, single parent households, that's a problem. And we need as a society to address it. African-Americans across the board, you know, whatever the group is concerned. So, you know, you could argue that the father's memory or the, his father as a sort of abstraction serves political goals in some ways. That is, it allows him to talk about fatherhood and talk about responsibility and so forth uh, in ways that may be appealing to this constituency or not so much to that constituency. And there's probably some political calculation behind using that sort of rhetoric in, in particular moments. Um, he 
I think he embraces his father more prior to running for office. And then when he runs for office, the highest office, the presidency, there's a, you know, he, he wants to get distance. You know, this guy was a bad father. He was bad to his kids. He was bad to his wives. You know, he was, he was, a, he drank too much and so forth. So uh, he certainly seeks to get distance. His father is sort of a fool for how not to be a father. And Obama himself is the self-conscious or trying to be a self-conscious example of how to be a father and how he and Michelle performed this sort of nuclear idealized family life for eight years in front of us in the White House with their, their two girls. Uh, so I think the father in that way ha has his sort of uses usages politically for Obama. But at the same time, I, I you know, just on a human level, as you were saying, Dean, you know, every kid deserves to have both parents, you know, uh, in, in their family. And Obama was was robbed of that in regard to having his biological father and his family. And I'm, uh, as an individual, I'm willing to give him a certain sort of latitude to speak to that, even if so, there are those who, who think that he's doing it in sort of crude political calculating ways. Uh, I, I, I think that having, you know, uh, him having gone through that experience of and not having the father in the house gives him a certain sort of space to to speak to that that issue, regardless of who might be offended by by being taken to task. Well, Professor Clegg, I hope people will pick up the black president, get to follow that child on his journey and see how it inspires all of us, whatever we have stacked against us or think we do, every president. That's what I've learned from reading these biographies, and certainly yours was no exception. There's all kinds of times you could just give up and give in to pessimism and say, I can't do it. And he doesn't do that. So thank you very much for giving us this view. I wish you the best of luck with this book. And I hope everyone picks up a copy, get to know him, not just as a transformative leader, not just as somebody you voted for or against, but see our see this first draft of our recent history and figure out how we got here and how we go forward and try to build that more perfect union tomorrow thanks again so much for joining me dean it's been a pleasure again the book is the black president hope and fury in the age of obama as always you can find the amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode by buying a book through us you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. But wherever you buy the book, please do pick up a copy of this. I can't thank Professor Claude A. Clegg III enough for joining us and for giving us these precious views and this precious early draft of the 44th president's historic two terms. Visit our guest at claudeclegg.com and at claudeclegg on Twitter. Again, that name is C-L-E-G-G. As for my social media platform, you can find it all linked at historyauthor.com. See that? I won't make you spell my last name because it's a lot harder than Clegg. <laughs> and if you enjoyed watching this conversation, please do subscribe at our YouTube and Rumble channels for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. Plus, you can catch my Washington Times columns. I hope you'll find them just as thoughtful as this conversation today. Speaking with somebody like Professor Clegg, I have to tell you, it's a real treat for me. It's so great to be able to dig into current events with our eye on history and what we know from the past and what today tells the people of tomorrow about who we were as Americans. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. 
I hope you'll join us for the next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Professor Clegg and myself, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears 